Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Provoki, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Bob Wyatt is an artist, author, and longtime angler based out of New Zealand. Born in Canada, he has been fly fishing since the late 50s. I met with Bob in New Zealand to discuss his prey image theory, trout fishing, and the early days of steelhead fly fishing. Born and raised in Alberta. I grew up in Calgary. In, uh, I started... I was lucky enough to have a have a father whose father and and his brothers all fly fished in in an old old fashioned way. You know, they're all wet fly fishermen basically. And what do you mean by old fashioned way? Wet fly well, fishing being well, well, it started down and across swinging swinging wet flies, and it was it's just the way most people fished. And some dry fly fishing, but it was it was always a secondary option. Was that because and, of silk lines? Did you guys have dry? <laughs> Uh, no, no, we had well, no, well, we had the first plastic lines probably in the very early fifties. They're pretty, they're pretty poor. I have to say, they cracked immediately and things like that. And, and of course, we were there, there wasn't a lot available until really sighted anglers and Cortland um, sort of sort of getting these products up into our areas. Although they were there, of course, there was some very serious fly fishing around even when I was a kid. But nothing like what well, uh, the availability of tackle now, of course, obviously. Um, but the people who are serious enough about it, you know, could get these things. And uh, uh, my dad uh, grew up in the Crow's Nest Pass, and and his brothers were all still there. So probably about the age of ten, although we'd done a bit of fishing before that, um, we he for some reason dad 
bought myself and my two brothers fly rods, and they were these Japanese kit rods. I don't know if you ever see these things. They show up occasionally on eBay and places like that. Quite sought after, but they were in the early days of Japan was still recovering from from World War Two, mm-hmm. and these are the kind of products they were producing. But they there was this. It was a very ubiquitous kit all over America and everywhere else. It was a, it was a split cane uh, fly rod that had like, a couple of extra tips and uh, you could reverse the handle and it even had a spinning rod section you could add onto it. So oh, it complete, really? Yeah, yeah. It was all split cane. Quite nicely made, actually, now when I think of it. So we all got one of these. I think they cost nine dollars and ninety-five cents for the the rod, and it was a, there was various things in the in the box. It's quite a nice wooden box. Anyway, it had like blue flies and stuff like that. The flies were ridiculous, but but so we all got one of those. And my my little brothers were nine, and I was ten, and that we got these things. And Dad bought us all a pair of of hip waders. So it was really meant meant business. He was going to get us going on it, and we so we, we were fishing the crow's nest and the old man river systems from very early on and and it was a fantastic it looks like a dream now when i think about it because it's this we're talking about the mid 50s now there was nobody around when we had these whole watersheds <laughs> seriously to ourselves so whoever we were with my uncles or me and dad and there wouldn't be nobody there nobody you know for a week you'd never see another fisherman that's that's the difference. That's that's that was, that's what's this huge change from the way things were, and, and of course, it really does feel dreamlike to me now. It's like and it's, it has the exact same feeling as if as if it's all been just a dream. That kind of set the standard for you then. Well, absolutely. So we started. So it was really we started off as 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 kids. We started off fly fishing very early on, but by the time I was about fifteen, um, I was coming in contact with. There were other fly fishermen there, and one group were called the Hook and Ackle Club. They'd been in existence in Calgary for some time, and they were a very serious, organized group of of anglers who met um, the second Tuesday of every month. So I went along. To, I found out about them because I was a fanatic by this time. I just that's all I wanted to do was was fish. That's all I thought about in school, out of school. That's just all I wanted to do. Completely gone. So I I. For some reason, I don't know how I found out about this this group, but I went along to a meeting, and this is amazing because I was just a kid, right? And they took me in. Here are all these grown men, right? There's about 35 of them, quite a group. And they all had these tables set up in this in this hall, and they'd show some movies, and they'd have a meeting, and then they'd, then they'd break up into groups along these tables and tie flies. And they just took me in. They had a little sort of, once a month, they said uh, Archie Malcolm was the old boy that... He ran the shop. He could get really good fly tying materials, good hackle capes and things like this. I hadn't experienced anything like this. <laughs> right. I, was, I was taking hackles off chicken necks, you know, stuff like that by that time. Oh, I'd started to tie flies by then. That's what it was. Mm. I started to tie flies. And uh, just one summer, I think I was 13, I got a, uh, a book at a library. It was, it was put up by Family Circle magazine, which was a... Basically, a woman's magazine. Actually, yeah. for some reason, they had, the Family Circle had published this hardcover book, and, it was, and I think it was called Flytain. It had a great big uh, Royal Coachman on the cover. You see, so I took that home, and that's what started me. That was in how to tie a fly. You see, so I tied these very crude things. It's basically <laughs> grizzly hackles and things like that. But anyway, so I got one. Really got into that. 
these guys took me in the hook and hackle club and they were just fantastic guys they're brilliant men the president then was a, a chap named orville griffith and i remember guys like dave lehman they they showed us they showed me really how to tie good trout flies like properly and archie malcolm was a great old guy and they would plan trips. They'd go and take group trips down to Police Lake after ice out and stuff like that. And they just took me along. I was a kid, you know. Was <laughs> your dad a member of the club? No, he wasn't. You know, no, he wasn't back. He wasn't a joiner that way. He just fished with his brothers, and he just let me get on with this. He must have thought it was okay, obviously. Yeah, it's free babysitting. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was a boy. You know, I was a teenage, young teenager then, but. But you was, had a trouble. Yeah, no girls. No, <laughs> just straight fishing all the time. But uh, that really, then I really got in with some serious uh, flaggers, and these guys would get together for casting evenings and stuff. And I was, I was, we were fishing with pretty wobbly fiberglass rods by then. And I learned about fly rods. Or Archie Mar- uh, I remember Archie Malcolm, one of these evenings, we're out in Riley Park in Calgary casting away big line of guys all casting away and and uh i I saw archie malcolm had a a one-piece tournament split cane tournament fly casting broad nine footer yeah i mean what i'd never heard of anything like this that existed you know somehow it was all spliced together in some strange way (laughs) but but they they really sort of uh got me uh, you know casting up to a standard anyway and uh orville griffith uh was a I think they had a, I can't remember what his company was, but part of the company was Magnolite fly rods. Mm-hmm. And they used, they imported grizzly blanks and lemon glass blanks from, from down south. And they were building like really top quality, but as good a fly rod as you could get in those days because this was before carbon fiber graphite. But really good quality on the famous old grizzly fly rod blanks, you know, those, those sort of uh, mustardy yellow the fly rod blanks you've probably seen them real you know oh yeah of course yeah yeah yeah. but they were good 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 blanks and he had he got the best components he could get you know which were the best you could get they made conventional rods too right who's that i just i've got an old one of those old mustard um rods but it's an old halibut rod that was custom made yeah lamaglass made them yeah yeah Yeah, so they made fly and gear yeah and and but who was behind that were, were people like Don Green and, and uh, Gary Loomis and these kind of guys. These are the guys that were doing this stuff. They're just getting into these plastics and building rods like these and really making the best rods you could get. And, of course, later, in about 1970, I think, then, then graphite appeared, and that changed the world. Everything. You know, yeah. Everything. So I could go down to this to Orville Griffith's business, and these all these guys working at drafting tables doing something. I don't know what. They were some sort of planners or architects or something engineers and then there was this this uh, in-house tackle shop with all the rod blanks up and you could test actions and do stuff and talk about it and and he you would go out back of the of the office and put a line up on one of these rods and you know while he was still trying out the rod he'd he'd give me casting tips while we're doing it i mean it was it was a brilliant exposure so that all i did was just just i was in total immersion fly fishing by then by the time I was 17, it hadn't changed, and I, I made up a, a couple of good fishing buddies in high school that were just as crazy about it as I was, it turned out. Maybe not so much fly fishing, but they got into it pretty quick. And then we, we fished, but all that up until then, I'd just fish with my dad and brothers, and we'd camp 
you know, down on the Crow's Nest River or the Old Man River and just fish our brains out until dark. Are those fish all native? All native. All native fish in those days. Absolutely. Yeah. Just wild cutthroat trout in those in the old man system and and the Crow's Nest River was at that time pretty much a, it had a few cuts in it, but it was mostly a, a rainbow fishery. A few browns too. They had stocked it early on. Some enthusiasts had put brown trout in it below Lundberg Falls. We never caught any of those. I think they were just about gone. What about bull trout? Where yep, a few bulls. Yep. Bulls Especially up in the old man yeah. through that country. Yeah, bull trout was a big, big thing. We didn't fish for them much because we weren't really interested in them. But well, yeah, that's kind yeah. of a newer thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, we we sort of despised them in those days because we considered them cannibals and they were trout eaters, and it was just an old-fashioned way of viewing things like that, these big predators, and we'd see them in the pools, you know, and lying there like submarines. But we didn't very, once in a while, you couldn't resist if you were a kid having a go at them. Occasionally you'd hook one, but mostly we were just fly fishing for for a trout, which in those days would, they probably ran just under and maybe just over the pound, you know, the, these native cuts. Great, great fishing. And we we just did that year after year until I was about was probably 17, and I got this fishing buddy, uh, Jim Barbaro was his name. And so we started fishing together. We are just going off on our own every chance we got to fish. And then gradually, um, I got, uh, as you do, just through reading. And if you're interested in fishing, you start like, reading all, about, uh, all aspects of it. Uh, I just naturally got interested in steelhead fishing through reading Haig Brown and, and these people which pulled me up into the Pacific Northwest with my friend Jim. We had a big trip up there one year, and I thought, okay, right now, <laughs> this is the real deal. So, uh, and then I went to, to art school for four years in, in Alberta and then a year in London to art school. And I didn't stop fishing at all. Of course, I fished over there. I fished everywhere. But but uh, life was getting serious by then. And I got married uh, before I went to London after a couple of years of art school. And uh, my first wife and I went to London together. And uh, then I, that really, I got a chance to experience some of the old, well, I'm calling it old-fashioned, but I just mean it's the, it's the version one of of fly fishing for trout and salmon, British style, you see. So I got a, quite a quite a uh, education there as well. And when I came back from there, there were no, you know, I mean, we're just an art student by then, just an art school graduate. So were you so trying to be an artist, or were you trying? Yeah. To, what was your goal well, at that point? Yeah, just be a painter, because I was, you know, um, that's that's what you, you thought you could you could do. But because I was in Western or Canada, Alberta. And there was no real market for anything like that. So I started doing wildlife painting. And, that, and I started to sell a few of those through a, a, a gallery there. And and while I was doing that, I was loading buses down at the Greyhound bus station. <laughs> that, was, that was my day job <laughs> or night money. job yeah. or whatever it was. Yeah, it was a shift job. And my uh, my wife then was, was going to university. She was picking up a teaching degree. And so we're just living like that, and uh, going fishing, you know, in, when not when not working. That was that was life. But we did that for about a year and a half, and then I said, let's you know, let's not do this forever. So another couple that we knew, an art school friend, who just been married as well, 
we decided to head for British Columbia. We were going to head up to Northwest British Columbia together. So we each had these panel trucks and everything we own in it. And we headed up to to the uh, where were we? where did we first went to. My wife got a, a teaching job at Fort St. James. Do you know where that is? Yeah, it's <laughs> not anywhere where I would associate a lot of great steelheading. No, no. no. <laughs> the reason we went there is because she got a job. Okay. <laughs> did you get there and go, oh, okay, maybe yeah. we need to relocate? Yeah, so this yeah. was a real, at that time, this is 1973 or something, it was a real bush town. And it had a sawmill, and it was right, there was a First Nations, what we, we call it, engine reserves in those days, back-to-back on the town. So it was a really old-fashioned uh, place. And we'll start right on the on the banks of, of Stewart Lake. And the Stewart River ran out of that, then joined the Nechaco, and then on into the Fraser system. So the big salmon runs would get, mm-hmm. we'd get sockeye runs right up to there. Great trout fishing over there. There was, yeah, yeah. So that was that was great. And I, I worked at whatever I could do. I was a school janitor there for a while at night. And then, then I got a job with the Pacific Salmon Commission uh, doing salmon counts. Uh, well, that was really interesting because we... We took trips right up to the upper Tachi River, so at 200 miles or something, by by boat, cross up Stewart Lake and through a chain of lakes and rivers, and absolutely no roads, no nothing. This was well beyond the so nearest road. this is yeah. before the days of helicoptering to count? Well, I think there was, well, there were helicopters around, but you never saw them. You weren't <laughs> counting from helicopters, though? No, no, no. We were just going up by boat. Because I think they count from helicopter now. Do they? Yeah, they probably do. It's a bunch more efficient, maybe. But So how would that work? So you get in the boat, and then you drive up, and, and yeah, how do, how do you count from a well, boat? Well, well, we don't count from the boat. What you do is you is you set a, a seine net. You run a seine net out. You find that a pool of salmon, and you would run a seine net out around. It's quite exciting, actually. And you'd bag this big bunch of salmon, um, and then you'd you'd pull a net up to the shore and anchor it. And out there's this seething mass of, of sockeyes, and you take them out one by one, put them in this little sort of wooden trough that was lined something so they didn't hurt themselves, and we tag them right and ah, let them go. Yeah. And so, see, on the, I I started that on the Stalaco River, which is an excellent trout stream. Mm-hmm. Um, later, I, I we uh, my wife transferred to a school at Fraser Lake. And I got a job. Or I didn't have a job there for a while, so I just did. The, I got the salmon commission job, and we uh, the, on that river. That's where we did these first big um, uh, sains of uh, salmon and catching and releasing. And then my job was we'd do a thousand uh, salmon, tag them, let them all go, and then you'd wait. You know, do the other jobs. We went to other places, say up the Upper Tachi and. The Andaco and and the Nichaco and various rivers where we did. Oh, it's sort, so wild up there! How it was many, absolutely wild. How many grizzlies did you run into? Yeah, well, well, a few actually. Yeah, yeah, but um, there's lots of bears, of course, in that country. It's absolutely wild. There's nothing else going on. Just logging back in the back country. It's still pretty wild. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, it hasn't changed much. A bit more logging than there was. You know, maybe quite a bit, but it doesn't look any different to me. The last time I was up. And so we 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 do that, and then at, after about I guess about uh, a month, my job would be walk the river every day. I'd walk the length of the Stalaco River, for instance. That's a seven mile walk. Go up the whole length of it and pitch out every dead salmon I could find down one bank. So, and then what we did is we'd get the ratio of recovered tags to how many we tagged, and that would they had a they had a 
well, not an algorithm in those days, but they had a, a system, a, a formula, and they could estimate the size of the run, which in those days was about 60,000 fish into the into the Stilaco system. So that was a, that was a fantastic job, except for the pitching. You know, what the, is pitching? Because I think well, I was taking dead, their dead rotting salmon out, throw them on the bank, look for a tag, and if there was a tag, you took it out. Oh, so you're actually pitching them onto the shore. Yeah, onto the shore, and you leave. Yeah, get them out of the rivers because you didn't want to count them twice. When you walk through certain rivers in northern BC, you'll see that the Chinook, for example, are beheaded. Yeah, and yeah. I guess they machete their heads off to know they've been counted. They'd be they'd be doing taking um, uh, otolith samples as well, probably yeah. those earbone samples. So we did a lot of that as well. So on a lot of these dead fish, and then and what so, were you guys trying to just? I mean, the otolith for people who don't know, it's a calcium carbonate buildup. Um, yeah, behind the fleshy part of the brain, yeah. and you can determine the age and also yep. where the fish has been. So yep. with sockeye, though, that's interesting to me. Sockeye yeah. are, I don't know, they're pretty. I guess nothing's simple, but they seem like they're pretty straightforward. Yeah. What were they trying to figure out with the otoliths on sockeye? I don't know, but I, but I, but apparently it gives you quite several bits of information that, that's useful when you're logging these things year after year after year and they see if they can, I guess they can f- see changes in their you know their life histories in various ways and scale samples we did as well yeah, or see where they yeah. were um, where they hatched maybe yep and you'd see what just what kind of sea feeding they had because it's like you know the annular rings on a tree you know you can see there's periods of high growth and then tight periods and you think okay, they've gone without feed for a while and it would be reflected in the size of the fish and sometimes the numbers of the fish too but more, the big impact then as it is now of course is commercial fishing and what they're really trying to do is establish the size of the run to say okay how, what's what's the quota going to be down you know off the Fraser Bar or something so that's what really that was all about the Adams River run and the stalaco and various things were they would they were very serious about this then, but they still managed to manage them into a you know a pretty dire situation it seems to me. So, and of course, my, the interest for me was was this stuff not so much in the Fraser, but in the other rivers up in the Skeena country. They were doing exactly the same things, and they were putting this when they were just putting in these big artificial salmon enhancement um, spawning channels and things. They were just going in when I was up there. That brand new, I think. The one up on the Bad Bean was just, just new. Just gone in. And, and it was already proving to be a huge success, you see. But that had real consequences for us steelhead fishermen because as they increased the the salmon run, of course, they allowed more fishing, and of course, they were they were hitting. Especially the summer runs were getting hit pretty hard. Oh, and this right. was way back in the in the seventies, so it was already an issue to guy. Everybody that knew it, like Bob Hooten and all these guys, were very aware of it back then. And he's been fighting that fight, you know, for forty years. Still fighting it. Still fighting it. Yep, same fight. Fewer fish, you know, and that's that's the issue. So. That's a that's a pretty potted history of <laughs> of my Canadian experience. So then, yeah. what happened though from there? Did you obviously you did stay fish counting forever? No, 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 no. I, but by then, I established myself as a as a you know I wasn't getting rich at it, but I was making a living as a wildlife artist. So I for a few years doing that, probably five or six years, and I was I was uh, I did a lot of work for Ducks Unlimited then, and I I was their artist of the year in nineteen eighty seven. And I got to know a lot of people that way. But uh, the paintings that I really made a living off were big game paintings for big game hunters. That's that's who paid my rent. Not so much the duck hunters, but but <laughs> or fishermen. But but so I was painting moose and bears and you know 
bighorn sheep and things like that for guys who are hunting them and they'd get a, a mounted head on a wall and it just didn't quite do it for them so they'd say could you do me a painting of that bear <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> standing in the willows or something so commissions so, you yeah commission you it was just commission, commission work. work just commission work do you ever get confused for bob white because there's a bob white know artist that. yes as well, i know right? bob white absolutely yeah he paints a different sort of thing he's primarily fishing scenes and some shooting scenes but he's good yeah he's yeah, no, I, I just tell did. you guys. I can tell you guys work apart, but I remember hearing Bob Wyatt yeah, and yeah. being like, "Did you say Wyatt or White?" Yeah, I that's just right. Couldn't. Yeah. So you were well known, thought out. Artist. Well, all of the two two uh, uh, select groups of of people who just you know, mostly be through word of you know the way hunters work, you know, and you, you go to uh, various wildlife shows, uh, ducks and limit and auctions and things like that, and you'd get get some get your work shown among people who are going to buy it. So I, I had one or two gallery shows too, and a couple of them did pretty well. But but generally, generally I wouldn't say they they did great because it was the same guys would go to my gallery shows and buy them there. But they'd much rather pay me directly. <laughs> so it was always the same people who bought them. It was just hunters. That's about my stuff. So then, how do you start to make your way into British Columbia? I mean, like well, into into steelhead. Yeah. World. Well, while we were in in Fraser Lake, it was when I was within striking range of of um, Smithers and the Bulkley, and that's a really interesting part of my life for me because again, it's like. I'll just cast back to when I was a kid on the in the Crozenest Pass area fishing there. It wasn't a paradise by any means because the Crozenest Pass mining towns were unbelievable places. They were like something out of some futuristic movie of just grim existences. These these towns were uh, Lentel and Michelle right in the past there on the Michelle Creek were black. I mean, everything was black. Houses built right up to the road in that old style they used to do in, in Britain, except these were wooden houses. And you drive through there and everything was covered with black soot. Yes, soot. And, and coal dust, just, just oh, coal dust. God, that can't be good for anybody. Well, I mean, absolutely not. I couldn't. And you'd see, you'd, you'd drive along there, coming back from a fishing trip kind of on the elk or something, coming through there at dusk or something, you see these black houses on both sides of the roads and the, the grim mining works and these slag heaps that were right up to the roads all the way through the pass. And uh, Coleman, the giant slag heaps, black. So they hadn't grown over at all. They were just black. And every time it rained, the rivers ran black. They didn't They didn't go brown. They went black. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, it was very, 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 very strange. But it was still, to us, it was still good fishing, but it wasn't as good as it got when they when they shut down the mines. I think in '56 actually they shut the Coleman collieries, and once the mines stopped working and the slag heaps started to grow grass over them, it took years, mind you. The fishing started to improve, and the and over the next 40 years or 50 years, those towns became more sort of tourist oriented because it's still a beautiful part of the country, and you don't really see much evidence of the old mining economy there at all now because the mines are now strip mines up the elk valley and where they're back away from the the where people live mm-hmm. where they take whole mountains down you know <laughs> but not like these these mines were, were deep pit mines and uh it was really quite a quite a hard existence down there and nobody had any work mm-hmm. so it was like western kentucky or something down there in the in the 50s nobody had any work 
They did all odd jobs. Everybody, all my uncles were, did. They did all sorts of things. Some of them were mechanics and drove trucks. They all fished. But <laughs> there was time for it. So I saw I saw a big change there, but it was only over the next probably twenty or thirty years I saw it improve into it became quite a quite an excellent uh, trout fishery down there. As with the with the loss of that industry, I mean the other the, the coal industry didn't stop, but it, it changed so radically. Is now people were having good good paying jobs and lots of them, and their their living conditions improved, you know, immediately basically. But I wasn't there for all that. I just saw it later, so I was older going going back for visits. But up in Skeena country at that time felt very frontier-like in the early 70s. I remember it was. It was frontier. And I remember I was saying to you the other night that I'd, sometimes I feel like I'm just coming to the end of when the frontier is closing down. Like things have changed. And just only a few years before, it was just the Wild West. And seriously, Alberta was like that in the 50s because Calgary was 125,000 people when I lived in it. It was just a town, basically. So... The Skinner country was really, that was the real deal, I thought. Okay, here we go. Just a few of these little logging towns is all it was. A few mines, like Fraser Lake was a mining town. It was built by the mine to house workers and had like this one shopping center. And, and you know, Marshall, well, what was it? Fields. I think it had one Fields uh, store where you bought your clothes and one grocery store. But it was it was right on the Stalaco River, which is a terrific trout fishing then. I hope it still is. Beautiful hatches of caddis and, and whatnot. And by then, of course, I was serious enough fly fishing that I could really take advantage of this. So we'd go out every evening, you know, after work and see if there's a hatch on that night. And there always was in July and, and you know, right through the summer. And that was, that was really good fishing and never anybody... There was a lodge up at the top at the bridge where just at the bottom of Francois Lake, Salaco Lodge, and they had guests, and they'd come down the river a bit, but they were usually relatively well-off Americans, very polite people, and some good fly fishermen too. Some of them were really quite serious guys. You could tell they're good casters and were fishing dry flies with these trout. And it was all, it was like a, I wouldn't say it was a closely guarded secret, but it's just not, not many people knew about it or was doing it. It's a magical time to be up there, and just for another couple of hours up the road was was Houston and the Bulkley, and, and then I started to get into serious uh, steelhead what stuff. What was that like back then? Well, that's that was a, a really interesting because these are really small towns and nothing much going on. Nothing, Houston was nothing. Houston's uh, still really tough. I mean, yeah. I, I live between Smithers and Houston. Yeah. And, I mean, Smithers is busier now, but Houston's still pretty quiet. It absolutely is. There's just a big logging concern going on. This has expanded, obviously, since I saw it. But And the town uh, Telqua, where I'm just out of Telqua, and yeah. you yeah. still can't get lunch there. There's no. nowhere to eat. I mean... It looks pretty much the same as it Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the fishing's not the same. No, no. Fishing's definitely changed. Even then, and Bob Hooten would, would back me up on this, is we're struggling even then with this, this whole, you know, the conflict between the big commercial salmon fishing industry and escapements, you know, just because they, all they were worried about was managing the escapement of, of commercial fish, and a steelhead would just get hit. They could shut off the mouth of the skina with gill nets instantly and get everything, you know. Yeah. Um, and if it just happened to hit that run of, of fish, the re, steelhead were coming in, they were just gone. So you'd have some pretty lean times. But there were enough of them back then. The ones that didn't get after the salmon closure, there was always enough that got through. So we lost a lot of the 
there's still big fish going up into the Kispiaks, but it was so noted for big fish. I mean, you had a really good chance of catching a, you know, an over 20 pound steel on the fly on the Kispiaks in those days. If you fished it for a week, you'd, you'd have a really good chance of getting at least one. Mm. I, I didn't, I didn't fish the Kispiaks that much because I like the, the Balkley. How for, many fish would you get in a day back then? Because well, for could, me, when I think of somebody fishing in the seventies, I'm like, oh, they'd be getting 12 fish no, a day. No, no, not at all. No, you get a couple. That's yeah. what you do, and if you if you hit it just right, you might get three. See, and I've heard, like, I yeah. have heard that, and yeah. so it's. It, what do you think that is? Do you think, do you think that steelheading is just hard, and so you know, even on a great year, two to three fish is a is a normal day, or do you think, like you said, that you were just missing it, and say in the thirties they would catch twelve a day? Like, do you think that there was ever a time where you could catch? I think in some rivers, yeah, you, you could have big days because every every riffle and every run would have have several fish in it, so your your odds went way up. But the fish were they weren't they're were never that numerous in the in the Bulkley anyway, and it's a big river, so not all of it, at least to us then, because you got to remember we weren't we weren't as we weren't as as uh, clued up as we are now about how to catch them either, and we were we were just swinging what were then steelhead flies like great big you know. Red and and well, I, well, I'll tell you about this. When I first fished, put things like Kispiaks net, I was fishing great big, like Woodot, you know, Skykomish sunrises and things like that, because that's what you read about in those days. That's what you fished, and and you'd, of course you'd get fish because you're you know, bound to get some. But there was a group of Americans that camped just just downstream of the of the confluence of the Little Bulkley, where it runs into the Mercenary every year, and it was a. Uh, it was a movable camp, not a movable camp, but a changeable camp because people would come and leave. And but it was this constant. Some guys were there for the whole summer. The people that could afford it, I'd go in. I'd go in there to fish as well because they're very open. There was none of the none of the, I don't know, jealousy or something. You might you get sometimes, cause, and it's just caused by pressure. But in those days, there was so much river to fish, and everybody was very very open about information. And you know, they wanted to be on the good run first thing in the morning as much as anybody does today. But they're much more generous with it because they knew there was you know just a I'll just go up there then you know, plenty of room for everybody. But they're great, great people, and they're all Americans. They're all Americans. They'd been they'd been down fishing those Northern California rivers and Oregon, Olympic Peninsula, and they they come up there, and that's and they always met. So they all knew each other, and some of them are famous names like Carl um, Mauser, who we mentioned. He was there, and a few others that you'd know their names, I suppose, but I'm sure you would, because some of them are probably still going there. But they'd be very old now. I mean, no, they wouldn't be there. They'd be dead now. They would. Some of these guys. Who are you thinking? Well, one old guy, he rattled up from uh, Idaho every year. His old International Harvester truck and his little tiny beat-up, you know, trailer, caravan trailer. And he'd haul that thing up there and settle in there for the for the summer. Essentially, once the once the the high water was over, he was there and he just fished every day and took it easy and tied flies and got to know everybody. His name was Jim Carmichael, and uh, he was a really nice old guy. And he was quite old then, and he uh, I got quite friendly with him because he was always there. And we chat away, and he changed my ideas of what a steelhead fly for the Buckley would 
look like. So oh, yeah. can you tell how? Yeah, well, he showed me these. Re- they just look like big black trout flies to me. <laughs> he said, he'd said, look at my flies and say, well, those are all very nicely tied flies, Bob. They might be something you'd use, I don't know, maybe in Norway or something. But and he said, well, all you really need here, and he'd, he'd hold up this big black, but a number, number six sort of woolly buggery thing. You know, and that, that was basically it. And I'd say, seriously? <laughs> yep. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Duke Cannon, the world's coolest men's soap and grooming company. From their classic big-ass brick of soap, scrubs, balms, aftershave, deodorants, and more, Duke Cannon products are available in the most wonderful sense known to mankind. Bourbon, beer, campfire, fresh pine, leaf and leather... Finally, a company who understands the value in smelling like a proper man. You won't need to worry about smelling like you've had a night on the town, though. Their beer soap has a wonderful sandalwood scent to it. But Duke Cannon is more than clever marketing and delicious products. They also partner with active duty military to develop new ideas and review products. Anything that doesn't meet the high standards of soldiers simply doesn't happen. Plus, they give back a portion of their proceeds to directly support the men and women who serve the USA. Visit DukeCannon.com right now and get 15% off your first order with the promo code FISHING. You'll receive free shipping on orders over $35. Check out their website, and I promise you, you will not be disappointed. You do not need to consult your doctor to see if Duke Cannon is right for you. Side effects may include humming the national anthem in the shower, flaunting your thick hair as though you belong on television, and close encounters with wildlife while hunting and fishing. Big ass soap refers to the size of the block and can be used on asses both big and small. you were fishing like sunrises and stuff so were they because those are winter flies yeah they're winter flies but that's Uh, what i that's what i knew then so i didn't know about this these summer run fish i didn't understand them all that well i mean i read Hague brown but we used to think differently then because we think well it might be a local thing like maybe they only take the steelhead bee on the heber in in august or something you see whereas whereas these guys they they knew all that stuff and there was a few of them they were already they were already skating some a few of them were already experimenting with these skated flies because they clearly must have had some atlantic salmon experience some of them yeah because a lot of the flies that have come over into bc if you look at the evolution of of steelhead fishing yeah a lot of it has has come over from yeah, Europe. I mean, even in Canada, yeah. the Scots obviously came over first, and yeah. they brought with them their fly patterns from Scotland. Absolutely, yeah. and they ended up eventually. Yeah, I'm surprised Hag Brown didn't end up fishing a lot of Riot Scottish flies. Do you know well, if he did that? Yeah, well, I think he probably did in the beginning. He's probably fishing Jock Scots and things like that. Mm. But he 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 learned, and I, I think it was just his his aesthetic sense that that took him uh, into a. Um, just a somewhat more sophisticated approach, and I think he thought of the the, the steelhead as being more trouty than a salmon, mm-hmm. so it acted more troutier, you know. Especially the summer runs, he was a really into, very very influential guy, as you know, and everybody who's into it has, has read him, and they and it still holds up. You see all the stuff that he was doing then, although he was fishing with cane rods, and you know he wasn't doing anything fancy that way. I'm sure he could he could cast fine, you know. But he did. They didn't even have. Uh, I mean, he wasn't interested in. He was using silk lines. He wasn't. Didn't have, or or uh, Americans hadn't convinced him that sometimes you could use a, a sinking tip on this in some way. Of course, they didn't really. You know, there were brand new things like things like sink tips were. You know, they came later. You know, and people were weren't weren't really using them. But 
But what he found was that these summer fish especially would come up well up onto the surface for a fly that was just being fished properly, you know. And the patterns were usually just a little mousier, you know. They weren't big flashy things anymore. They were they were trouty, sort of in a way, like like the Lady Caroline and things like that. These beautiful spay type flies with flowing, you know, hair and hackles. Oh. Those beautiful things. So these guys that I was meeting on the on the Bulkley, obviously some of them knew knew of this stuff. They're quite familiar with it all, and they're very good casters. And they they had everything, you know. They could they could do it, but uh, that's before. That I think graphite rods had just just started showing up by about then. You just started to see the odd one, but most of the guys were fishing cane and, and uh, fiberglass rods. Single hand casting? It's all single handed. Never saw a double handed rod. Yeah, because yep. Mike Maxwell didn't start yeah. that until around the 70s That's right. and start promoting it until like yep. a lot later, right? That's right, yeah, a lot later. So I don't know exactly when. But it was guys like Bill McMillan and people like this fishing that Hague Brown style with double-handers. Those guys on the Vancouver Island and Olympic Peninsula where some of them were fishing double-handers because they wanted to do it. You know, they just wanted to do it that way. They were interested in the aesthetics of the whole thing. So they fished more or less surface flies, not always dry flies or escated flies, but certainly right up there in the top couple inches. When did McMillan do that revision of grease lining for Sam? For yeah, Sam yeah, I can't remember the date. I wonder. He was that very influential. influential. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about boats? Were they in rafts or did they bring their uh, prams? Down? Mostly prams. Yeah, people had prams up there in those days. I never saw a drift boat up there. You know, all the time I was there, I never saw one. What it about was a jet different. boat? Uh, no, no jets. No, oh, no. That be no, I know it was it was a peaceful kingdom up there then. I'll tell you, it was it was quiet. The river, there was never any noise ever. You know, someone may be cutting up some firewood with a chainsaw. It's all you'd hear. It was a welcome sound. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Otherwise, you're just thinking, is there a bear around that corner? <laughs> there always was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, it was it was it was quiet pursuit. They actually used to call it that. Remember when Fly Fisherman mag- magazine? God, that was on their sport. masthead. The quiet pursuit. That's mm-hmm. what that's what fly fishing was like. No jet skis or jet boats. <laughs> there are actually jet skis on the bulk of you. You know, know that, right? I know I can't. <laughs> I don't know what to say about it. <laughs> you know, I guess it's a oh. economic necessity in some way for these guys, but I don't know. That's I don't know. I don't think it's a good thing. Yeah, I just I'm not don't. Into it. Yeah. I'm not into it. Yeah, yeah. So, how yeah. was fishing for you, and what did it do for your fishing? Well, old Jim got me. He he gave me a fly to try, and I waited straight out from the camp. There was a river. It was a river was just just low enough that I could wait right across it at this this spot and it was a lovely sort of a, 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 a large gravel um, um, drop off with a, just a lovely bit of sort of poply water running off and I, so I, I waited out there with his fly on and uh, just a single handed rod of course and made a couple of passes and I got what felt like just a little bit of a knock and I thought oh <laughs> hadn't had one of those for a few days so, <laughs> so so I stuck with it and I got this cracking 14 and a half pound hen oh. yeah so that on that out, little black thing that, that you were black, yeah but a size 6 bully buggery thing that, that Jim had given me <laughs> so I thought okay that's the way to do it and uh yeah, I brought that back because we were whacking them in those days. We, we didn't really, well, we lost some fish, but mostly we'd, we'd get a fish, we'd take it home and eat it. So I waded back across with this thing. 
into camp and she <laughs> 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 was mightily impressed. He says, well, are you the lucky guy? <laughs> 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 Sorry, he hadn't gone out there, I guess. But, so obviously a fish or two had just come in. So Did that start yeah. to mess with your brain? Did you start thinking, okay, these fish are eating or they are trying to match insects yeah. and, and well, well the, the term we used then and I'm sure you got it because I think it I think it originated really down on on the vetter when people were winter fishing and every once in a while a, a steelhead a winter steel would come up and take the float yeah. these guys were gear fishing and they'd say and it usually it'd be a little rise in temperature or something gone mild or something and and they used to say well oh they're feeling trouty today yeah yeah, yeah. And, all the time yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah all those fish are real trouty yeah they're trouty so that, that's yeah. what that meant i think i think that was the great appeal of of the bulkley was that this the, the steelhead were, were trouty once they got up there and oh, spit when they were fresh definitely but even after they'd settled in for a little while you could get them they come up to the surface and and these boys were uh i remember what was his name was it harry winter harry lemure uh, yeah, these guys, they were starting to skate these things and mm-hmm. coming up with flies that caused a little wake, and which is really Portland Creek stuff from, from Atlantic Salmon and Newfoundland, you know. And they were they were really getting into it. And how exciting, you know, to be onto a technique like that to where we can have these big, beautiful <laughs> fish coming up and taking you on the surface, you know what I mean? Just fantastic. So you can, you can appreciate the enthusiasm for this kind of stuff. Then, and not for, I mean, there was never, there was never the, nothing like, of course, the pressure that's on these places now. And I think a lot of it had to do with the, when you're fishing water, it hadn't been fished that day, usually, you know, it hadn't had a line over it. Now, whatever was going to go over that, uh, if there was a fish in a, in, in a spot, if a you know, very good chance the fish is going to have a look at your fly, you know, at least come up behind it. And so it was exciting, you know, you'd see so, suddenly a shape show up behind your fly and you know, <laughs> keep you going for a while. Maybe you'd get them, maybe you wouldn't, but occasionally you'd, you'd get one. So yeah, it was amazing, amazing stuff. Does this have any sort of influence on your prey imaging technique that you have become famous for probably probably in, in hindsight i could probably stitch it together like that but but that's all about trout fishing and especially okay right let's back up prey image is just a, it's just a term i coined in my for some i was writing for a flashing fly tying in in britain that magazine for a few years and i was i came across where did i come across it I came across an actual scientific term. Prey image isn't a scientific term. Sounds like one, but I, it, I meant it to do that. <laughs> but what the scientific term is actually search image or searching image, right? Oh. And I came across that term in a book by Rob Sloan, who wrote... Oh, in Australia. Yeah, all about trout. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, for your, for your listeners, he's the editor of Fly Life magazine. Great guy, good fisherman, fish biologist turned magazine editor. And a great fisherman too. I've had that had the luck to fish with him on Arthur's Lake one day, and and we really had a great day too. But but he's just uh, he's just one of that kind of quiet, deliberate fly fisherman that you really like to fish with. <laughs> <laughs> but he in this book he talked about because this is a this is a it's part of what they call optimal foraging theory. This is the science of predator prey relationships, and this is a, it's actually a theory that predators. In their brains, not intentionally, but in their brains, they, they create a search image of the prey that they're going to eat, the thing that they eat. And all predators do it. It doesn't matter if it's a spider or a grizzly bear. 
or you, if you're looking for your partner in a crowded shopping center, right? How do you, how do you, you know, all those heads and how do you spot yours, right? Oh, there she is. There he is, right? And that's way, that's what it is. So your brain does this thing and probably, because everything's essentially a predator of one kind or another anyway, so it's probably just built into evolutionary, you know, formation of brains and eating, you know, you got to eat. So this, so Rob Sloan wrote about this thing. This is what a trout was doing when it was searching for its prey or looking for its prey or just waiting for it, you see, because trout can sometimes just be sort of passive and they're waiting for the food to come down the conveyor in a you know, stream. But I thought this, this really, I thought, okay, yeah, that's, that is exactly right. That's really good stuff. So I started looking into that, into search image theory, and that just changed everything about the way I approached flies. And that it all started to make sense of why some flies are just better than others. I mean, why are they? Well, fly tying is a is a very arcane art. It's all about the craft of fly tying and about tradition, which which really complicates the matter because you you tend to people do this for, with everything, but boy, in, in fly fishing they sure do. It's hard to to not be influenced by the tradition that have gone into say the design of trout flies over the past four hundred years, right? They look a certain way, and it gradually, gradually, gradually gets fined down until you've got the sort of the Halford style and Catskill style dry fly with the stiff hackles and the upright wings and the tails and all that stuff and color. Well, Sloan in in his book, uh, it's called it's called All About Trout. Yeah, I think it's called I've Trout. read it. Yeah, in there he talks about this in a different way, and I thought it really influenced me because he's you could tell he wasn't saying it, but you could tell that what he thought was it's simpler than that because his flies were just kind of pretty scruffy looking things. They didn't look like much. They kind of looked buggy, right? Is it the truth about trout? Truth about trout. Sorry, yeah, right. sorry, Rob's. <laughs> well, he's written several books. Yeah, he's got a couple out. Yeah, got more more truth about trout. <laughs> yeah, truth about trout. Yeah. So that wasn't because because when I started thinking about that, I realized that that yeah, that my favorite flies were really just buggy affairs, and I didn't I, they weren't you know they weren't very sophisticated flies. They were, I always tried to tie them tie them well. Yeah, because you're I an t- excellent fly tire. Well, and I tried to tie the you know I tied all the standard patterns, but I always wind up using really basic things. One in particular, this one fly in particular, and I uh, we used to call it. Uh, there was a guy a fly tire that, that tied flies in Bellevue, Alberta in the Crozen's Pass in the 50s called Jerry Avaledo, Italian family, mining family, but he was a real serious fisherman. He fished all the time. And he, he tied flies. He also sold flies. A little tiny shop that was attached to what used to be the Bluebird Motel, which, <laughs> which, which is interesting. <laughs> but so he had this little tiny uh, shop, not, 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 big, not much bigger than his table, and he had a, he had a couple of shelves with english tied dry flies you know and you'd buy some of those of course but his flies were really crude looking things but the fly that the dynamite fly for all of us down there was was what he called a bucktail and it, it was just because nobody read anything down there and no one read magazines or there were no videos and no one knew anything right so the, all the tradition was, as you said, it, it was all that Scotch, Scotch, English, Northern, Northern English and Irish uh, trout fishing traditions, right? So those are the flies you use, and that's the way you fished them. Yeah, and just so people know, a guy named John S. Ben, yeah. he came in from, I think it was Ireland, actually. Yeah. And he came into California in like 18, in the 1880s. Yeah, yeah. 
And he was the one who really... Because a lot of people give Roderick Hag Brown credit for bringing over a lot of the Euro tactics. Yeah. And yeah. I love Hag Brown, yeah. and I wish it was Hag Brown, but actually it was John has been from Ireland. Oh, sure. And and there were others, too. Mm-hmm. Rod makers and line makers and all kinds. These guys were really serious about it. It's just there was no internet, and they they corresponded by handwritten letter, you yeah. know. Really see and each like other once a year. Two month long journeys to get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So things just moved slowly, and but it, but this, this thing was things were adding up. Well, this Jerry Avalado's bucktail was really just what you would now call, and I'm sure he must have seen like maybe some American had come up from because about the same time there are other flies tied with with uh, deer body hair wing, which are just everywhere now, of course, but they weren't then. They used to be feather wing before it was hair wing, right? Feather wings, yeah, yeah. yeah. People have just tied standard classic trout, either either the Ray Bergman style, American style, wet flies and dry flies, Catskill style, or the English patterns. Mm-hmm. Basically, they all looked identical. They were just different colors. That's, that's essentially the difference. Some of them had upright wings and some had splay wings. Very few had splay wings. Mostly they were that classic, you know, up wing dry fly that was your dry fly and your wet flies were all the classic wet flies jerry's fly is an entirely different thing great big fat wool bright yellow body not bright yellow sort of an orangey body right and then uh, uh this big clump of deer hair strapped onto the back of it it's a pretty big fly too like a, a 10 or an 8 and then a brown hackle just a standard brown hackle wrapped around the front over top of everything and he called it a bucktail. And so we did too, because we were kids. And this is way back in the 50s. That fly was just absolute murder up on the cutthroat streams of in the in back of the old man system and that. I mean, that's all you would use. You would never tie anything else on. Did it look like a sedge? So, well, it, well, that's what we thought. We thought, it, well, we didn't know. We didn't know what it looked like, actually. You know, come to think of it, we didn't, we didn't associate it with an actual fly. And cause, because you would think of flies like this, it didn't really look like anything that was actually on the water. It was just what you used. Fly fishing was a very strange thing. So it, there's, there's weirder stories than that, but this, this one is a good one. So I was, by the time I was 13, 14, I was tying flies, right? And so my uncles, who didn't want to pay Jerry Avaletto for his flies, you know, would say, you know, Bobby, roll me a dozen bucktails. Child you know? labor. <laughs> Absolutely. So as soon as I got in the door, all kind of stuff. So I'm tying flies from my uncles. And one guy would take 12, and I'd do another 12. He'd take 12. And so they'd all had their flies, see? And it was all the same fly. that They didn't want anything else. You couldn't mess around here. It had to be the orange body, big, thick deer hair weighing in a brown hackle, and then they'd go off and, they'd, you know, catch fish, right? Well... I wasn't tying flies as, as well as I do now, of course, and some of them, they'd come apart, and various, especially big deer hair wings, and I didn't really have all the techniques of really strapping down a, a bucktail or a deer, a deer body hair wing. And one thing that happened when you cut a lot of fish on a fly was you'd lose the hackle, you see. So, but I found it didn't make any difference. I found very quickly. And I also found that a black, sort of, a, my mother had a ball of this, of this uh, knitting yarn, it was sort of a charcoal grain and had the finest little, almost silvery little speckles in it. Not not flashy stuff like you'd see now. It just had a funny look to it. And I said, I just going to swipe that. And it that on the body, you made this charcoaly gray body and then just a wing, just that you heard a wing on it. That became my go-to fly back probably by about 1960. That's, that's, what we, that's what I was using. And it seemed to work even better than Jerry's fly. And so... I just never tied another hackle on this fly ever. I just that's the way I tied it. That's all it was was this body with a wing. That was it. And so that fly, which now I call <laughs> my 
something I do here, Sedge, because it's probably there's probably hundreds of guys have tied flies similar to that. Although they're not commercially, you know, because you have to dress them up a bit if you want to sell flies. Yeah, yeah, they can't be too simple because yeah, these are they don't really sell simple. They're ugly. They don't look like anything, but I mean, they're just absolute killer way of, of fly. So this tied in with just getting now back to Rob Sloan, and I looked at his flies and I thought of my sedge pattern, my version of a sedge pattern, which by then I was calling it that. And it, well, a big one would just be a stonefly. See, that's the way we thought about it, because if you had a great big size six, then it was a stonefly, and if it was small, it was a caddis, you see. And, and and the other thing was, the reason I was tying the black bodies was because we had that big Taranarxis stonefly in those streams, the big black guy with this salmon orange belly, mm-hmm. right? Great big things like that. So you couldn't tie a fly too big either. You could tie great big flies, see? So, so all this was... Starting to, I don't know, it wasn't really connecting in my head, but I was just in there. And uh, Sloan's book just kicked off a couple of synapses. They fired, and and um, and I, I just put a f- couple of things together, and I started going into this whole search image thing. Like, what is a trout actually responding to? You know, so I think it's probably he would he would agree. I think, and other people do now. And I've, I've met plenty of guys who say, "Oh, that's all you need. You don't need all that stuff. Just just use just use this." Say. Some beat up old Adams or something like that, or a hare's ear. Don't fish with anything else, and they they seem to catch as many fish as anyone else, right? There there are situations when when they don't. You have to use something else, obviously. But but surprising just how how well a simple pattern like that worked. And so I, I wondered why, you know, if these fish are being as selective as we thought they were, right? So now I don't think they are. I think selectivity is is the is the narrow window that you occasionally bump into when there's been lots of one kind of fly. But what I was interested in is is what your fly is actually projecting. What are the the stimulus response thing that's setting up? Because that is looking in, into uh, search image theory and optimal foraging theory. It it got me into behaviorist theory. And this, and that got me on to people like Conrad Lorenz and these people who were looking at animals' responses to things in their environment, everything from, you know, mating to everything else. Things like, for instance, a seagull has a certain seagull, anyway, has a red spot on its beak, and the chicks respond to that, you know. And if you if you come up to, the, to these, these chicks with a red pencil, they go mad. They respond to it so strong. It's stronger. Like the more red you showed them, the, the stronger there was, was a response. Oh, so and it's not just silhouette that we're talking. We're no. talking about there are certain characteristics yeah. that certain trigger certain species. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And this stuff, it appears to be, this is all, all theoretical still, but it seems to be pretty, pretty much borne out. Most of the stuff is innate. They don't, they don't learn it. They have it. They crawl out of the egg and they're, you know, they see that red thing the way they go. Well, this applies right across <laughs> right across the board. Everything and Conrad Renz did really interesting. He noticed this. He had a tent in his in his lab or wherever he was working. Um, he had a, a Siamese fighting fish in an aquarium, and he noticed that the, you know a Siamese fighting fish flares up and all its fins go out and it gets aggressive and you know ready to attack. He noticed it did that every time a big London bus drove drove by. What? <laughs> 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 Interesting, eh? Yeah. So, so that's the kind of stuff that really, really gets your brain working, and that that triggered him up. He said, "What's going on here?" 
you know, it's not it's not the fins, it's not the other stuff. It was just the, obviously the color red, and lots of it was was causing this fish stuff to flare up, and and nothing else was doing it except other fighting fish, of course. Did, yeah, did the other fighting fish flare up at the red bus as well? Well, all they all, all of them would do it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But and normally, what you what you thought you needed was another fighting fish to make them do that. And they put they used to put a glass panel between remember, them. Yeah. So, you know, want to get at each other. So he said, okay, so this one's ready to rock here. And only because it saw this big flash of red go by. So that's the stimulus. So that led into all sorts of studies. That have, most of them have been proven, of course, now. And crazy stuff like, and I used to write about this in my fishing articles because they, they're, just, they're just funny and they make good articles. But for instance, a goose lays an egg, right? And they're very protective of the egg. Well, if you if you replace that egg with a great big egg, they just about go mad trying to hatch it, you know, because <laughs> the bigger egg is such a much stronger stimulus than the small egg. And it was just as simple as that. So a big egg made the, mo- made the mother really get motherly. <laughs> so, <laughs> Poor but, mom. Yeah, I know, I know. So things like that. And I, and I, it got me thinking and found out things like, um, or looked into things like, oh, everything like uh, women's makeup, for instance, like accentuating the eyes and the lips and all these things. These are just straight behaviorist stimuli. The eyes are important, and you, you enhance them. You see. So then, it, now obviously, where, where we're going with this is trout flies. <laughs> so. <laughs> So, but it's so everything you're saying right now. I'm just in awe. This yeah, well, is it's good, isn't it? I yeah. mean, it just is. It's just really interesting things. But, but so you want to say, okay, so what are what are the actual triggers? You know, and I started to think, well, some flies seem to work better than others, and it didn't seem to make sense. I mean, those days. I mean, it's not that long ago. We're talking about the '90s now. A commonplace thing you'd read was was they're they're on trichos, but they're only taking the males. Or something like that, you know. I'm like, well, why would they do that? I think, why would they do that? You know, that does doesn't add up. It doesn't. Well, it doesn't fit optimal foraging theory. That's for sure. See, because a fish will, or a fish or any anything is going to eat what it can get most of in the shortest with the least effort, shortest time. That's that's the way it works. So, what you want to get interested in is is what what are the actual uh, stimuli in a in a fly. Why do they? Why do some work better than others? And they, it, to to my mind, it boils down to some pretty simple things. So it's just that, as you just mentioned just a few minutes ago, it was that 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 basic silhouette. Another interesting thing that I came across while looking into this was GISS or or, or GISS. Right, it's just an acronym. GISS G I S S is an acronym for General impression, shape, and size, which sounds perfect for fly tying, doesn't it? But it had nothing to do with fly tying. It was something that that it's a it's a term that bird watchers use. It's it's when you're learning how to identify birds, that's what you're going for. You're going for this general impression, shape, and size. Before you get into the details of colors and head colors and all these other stuff, all these other things. But it wasn't even their term. It's it's a it's an old Royal Air Force term. They trained fighter pilots to make instant, without even thinking about it, instantly identify enemy fighters. It's a life or death matter. You had to instantly make sure that you were that was a fighter or not a fighter and an enemy one instantly by its general impression, shape, and size. Before you got into it, anything else like their their markings or whatever. So. 
that just seemed to tie perfectly into this whole idea of everything works like this. <laughs> everything in the world sort of works like this. So with trout flies, I just I really just made an effort to boil things down to these really really basic shapes and sizes and for for a general impression. And that's what I call the prey image. That's the it's the it's what the, your fly is actually projecting. What stimuli what stimuli are being projected by your fly that are going to evoke the response from the trout. What will get its attention and keep it coming? And I'm not saying that the finer details of a, an imitative fly tying are unimportant entirely because some things will make a difference. Color clearly makes a difference at some, in some instances, but usually not. I find if you've got the size right, the general impression is right, and it's posture. And then after that, it's you. It's just it's the driver. Because where does presentation fall into that? Into the guess? Right. Well, that's that's the important thing, as far as I'm concerned. Once you get your fly basics or your fly right, and all the rest is just fly tying. It's just craft. It's just. I mean, I don't want to want to disparage it. I'm just saying, excellent fly tying is it's an art form, but it's a very highly evolved craft, and it's and it's fantastic. Everything about it. But if you really, these days, with all the pressure that's on a river and, and the limited exposure we have to things like uh, decent hatches and, you know, to get them all to yourself for an hour while it's happening, you don't want to mess around, you know. You want to you have a fly on from the get-go. So if you, start, you see a rising fish, you're right on it now. And that's what, it, that's what it does for me. I don't have to worry about fly patterns. So I use three. And not nymphs. Nymphs are just as simple, but I've got two or three, a hair's ear and a pheasant tail or something. And if you get the size right and you present it right, get the depth or whatever it's doing, watch your drag, all the stuff that everybody knows about, but not everybody everybody knows about it, but they don't always practice it. Practice it. Not really. How, do you think people spend too much time changing flies out there? Yeah. Yeah, they spend half the time changing flies. And the, or, or the worst thing is they start worrying they, that, it's a, that it's the fly. It's probably probably not the fly. If they've done their homework and they, they've got one that's in the ballpark, mm-hmm. um, it's it's almost invariably not the fly. How do you know if you should be starting big or small? Whatever, whatever you think the trout are eating, and this is also interesting too. They're not they're not always eating. Sometimes it's not about you. You know, it's it's the it's about the fish and. You know, you've seen it. If you've fished here enough, you'll see it. You'll come up in the, and I think this is probably 50% of a guide's day. They're going to get paid anyway. What they have to do is take a client out and show them a fish. Well, in this country, they're big enough. You you see them. Mm -hmm. Then it's up to the client to catch them. And if he doesn't, he doesn't. He's had a shot, right? Well, the fish aren't always eating. They're out there just poker straight. It doesn't matter what you put past. They're not eating. But when you start seeing one going side to side, mm-hmm. you know, or just doing this. Big white mouth now, opening. Yeah, now you've got to take her. That guy will eat if you if you present your fly. And they'll eat quite a range of things. You don't have to worry too much about what it is. Fish that's doing that is just ready to go. So then it's completely up to you. And I think that's that's fly fishing. That's where ninety percent. Once you get everything worked out, your cast. Well, your casting is absolutely. You have to get that right. You have to be able to cast. Not everybody can. I mean, even the people who think they can can. You know that as a, <laughs> you know. So, you really have to work on that. 
and there's there's casting while you're fishing. There's casting on a lawn, and then there's casting and controlling your you know line control and drag and you know everything wind direction, you, everything between you and that fly. Apps, all that stuff. That's still it. So before you even start to think about your fly, and if you can get it so that you you don't have to think very much about your fly because you know it's going to work, then you're you're away. If you, what about when you said that sometimes, you know, they were thinking that the male fly, the male, what was it that you said? Well, yeah, well, well I've read a couple of one, summers, you get these big hatches and, what, and what because guys, that, that oh, well, the tree coats, tree yeah. hatch, there's tiny little flies, we're talking about 20s, mm. 22 sometimes, right? What would the, what would the characteristic be that it, that's different in a male than a female? Well, I don't know. They're, well, that's exactly right. See, I, for anything that's actually going to be on the water, there's not going to be much difference the size is going to be there's tiny differences in size between the males and females but but if you it's where i take i take odds with some of the claims made by although i have mm. this is one thing let's get clear for this like some people say that i that i actually i'm attacking say swisher and richards who i feel like they're like you know they're their eminence is, is huge. Their influence is huge. It's a it's a Bible selective trout. I just think they took it too far. That's all. And they say like one you know thirty second uh, of a uh, what was it one thirty second bigger on on a size of a fly could make all the difference. Well, no, it doesn't. It mm, doesn't. Or like a red rib on a chronomid is yeah. going to outfish a black rib. Yeah, but. yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, Carl was just showing me some some blood rooms he got from from up on a, on a river here, uh, uh, lake uh, flats, mud flats actually. And the fish is full of them. They're all about I don't know, uh, ten millimeters long, skinny little things. Very hard to imitate. And it's entirely possible that that the fish were were queuing on that red color. But a couple of them, he put them in a dish on the river when he or when he cleaned the fish when he got it back. He kept it to eat, it just, and partly to see what he had in his stomach. And had a lot of these in him, hundreds of them. Some of them are still alive, and they were thrashing around. Mm-hmm. They were just going to beat the band so you have to say well it, it could easily be partly colored but one thing is almost definitely is, is is the movement of the critter itself clearly that would be the first cue for a trout they would see that from some distance they'd catch that movement go right to it and so that's what i i really want uh, in a in a trout fly is i want them to see it so that's why the posture is important. In a dry fly, for instance, they got to see the damn thing i like these these flies that with no hackle on them because they they pierce the the surface film and if you look at something that's hanging just below the surface it's almost got a double it has a double image actually on a, on a smooth surface it's twice twice what you think of it course is it would yeah i, did, yeah, I know i mirror. actually am embarrassed to admit that i've never thought of that well nobody thinks of this you but know you're right it would yeah be, it would so you're spending all this time on all these tiny little details in the fly and what the fish is probably responding to is really quite a you know blob up there so I like them to see it, and if it's below the surface, they can see it at a great distance. They can see it maybe 10, 15 feet away, they, they, and I think they're ready for that. I think that's what a, trout, a feeding trout is doing. That's what he's picking up on first. Okay, there's something. There's all this other stuff coming down the water column with it. There's all kinds of rubbish coming down. So he's got to pick out the stuff that's more likely to be food than not, and they made mistakes. So they see this thing. Then the next thing, if it's if so, it's got that that posture is put it below the surface, for instance, just slightly, and nothing else is is distracting the trout. The main thing, the the, the main part of say a floating mayfly or a, or a caddisfly, is just that body. 
right? Now, the wing may be important as, as a secondary trigger. I think in some, especially on flat water, it could easily be a, a second trigger. And John Goddard in, in England did a lot of work with that. And uh, Vince Marnero did that about the, raising the height of the of the wing, making a longer wing, because on flat water, on some of these sort of chalk streams type things, just outside, when it when it comes to the edge of there of the trout's window, as a fly comes to the edge of what they can actually see above the surface, the first thing they see in I'll see a, a full fully formed mayfly with that upright wing. It's just the very tip of the wing. It's the first thing that gets their attention. Ah, out of the water. Out of the water, yeah, because it's because everything's a mirror up until this little window of clear space. So that was their theory. I don't put that much stock in it now. I think. A better thing to do is actually have the body piercing the film. They see that from three times as far on flat water. So they're already watching it. They're watching it come. They're watching it come. They're watching it come. And, and if it still looks good and you haven't moved it, drag, there's no micro drag, your leader hasn't flashed or do all the things that we do, you know, the fish starts to get ready to intercept this thing. He starts drifting up towards it. So all it's got to do is keep it coming. And if it's made all that effort to get up there to go, he's going to eat it. So unless you do something, and it's usually drag, and that's when they do this. The fly starts to just do something odd. It's not doesn't doesn't expect, and you'll see a fish start to follow that fly down instead of eating it. He starts to follow it back like that, and then he says, "I lets it go." Oh, that's the story of my life. Well, of course Damn it, it is. <laughs> it's everybody's. And what do you do? You change flies. Yeah. That's what you do. It's the first thing you do. Oh, it's a rejection. You know, you chuck that. Out comes a fly box. You're digging around. <laughs> oh, no, what was it? Oh, no, no, no. Maybe it's too much red in it or something like that. And that's that's fly fishing. That's most of what fly fishing is. So what would you do? Would you just recast and recast. make sure not to drag? Yeah. Or reposition yourself so you can get a better drag? Absolutely. Maybe get upstream of them so I don't get that little bit of drag. Just if you can do that without him seeing you and fish down to him. That's a really good tactic, by the way. And lots of guys know that now. But it's harder than you think. But <laughs> because they get the, you can't let the fish see you. Yeah. And there's lots of things. You can see your rod tip. And sometimes if they're a bit jumpy, if they've been fished, they will. Anything that happens out of the ordinary, I think I'll just go into the bank. And, they, and that's what they do. So, so what's yeah. next for you? You're going to move to Scotland? Yeah, I'm going to go to Scotland. I'll be coming back here every year as far as I... I plan to anyway. Well, there's still some life in me, and and yeah, just keep keep fishing, and yeah, and I hope to get back up to this. Yeah, I was up in the Skeena country when you were up there last year. I was up there in September. It was a bum year for a steelhead, but it's lovely to see that country again. Big hit of nostalgia there, I'll tell you. So I want to get back up there again next year or so. Do another trip up there, and hopefully hit it right. I think I'll go a bit later and put up with some bad weather. And, you know, October maybe or something like that. Not that I should be saying this out loud to anybody. <laughs> Let me know when you're there, because then when the floods come, I'll put you to work. Yeah, yeah, I do that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Use some manpower around yeah, there. Yeah, I'll bet, yeah, yeah. You've got quite a situation there. Yeah, I need all the help I can get. <laughs> or yeah. you can just watch Adelaide for me. Thank you yeah. for watching her earlier. Bob's been my... Um, <laughs> Babysitting, my standard babysitter. <laughs> Good kid. <laughs> Good great kid. Essential skills. Yeah, right. She's a, she's a crack up. Yeah. Um, I feel like your life is just so, you've done and seen so many things. Is there anything in particular that, I mean, I know I've missed a lot, but is there anything in particular that you'd really like to add? To it? Well, I'd like to do some things over again, you know, just or keep doing them. Let's put it that way. Like, there's some saltwater fishing that I really I really enjoy, you know. I've had some good saltwater fishing that I love. Uh, I haven't had as much opportunity as I, as I had when I was living in Australia mm. up there, although that was a tough scene, I have to tell you. Fishing, fishing, fly fishing in Australia is is a tough deal, you know. 
So I had four years up there, which was fascinating, really, battling with 10-meter tides and Yeah, you were saying you were way up <laughs> <wind>. north, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but great. I mean, that's what it's all about. It's all about that stuff, learning, learning that stuff and just experiencing it. Well, I'm going to let you get back to your day. Is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me? Well, yeah, you know, because I know that one of your big issues, I know this because I've read your stuff and what your concerns are, and I know that you know the guys that I know of over there, like Hooten and that, who are really concerned over this, the shape of things right now on some of those rivers. The same issue here, we talk about it here, but it it hasn't hit home as hard yet what's happened on, on say, uh, the Bulkley in, in, uh, in British Columbia. Now that's just that's just a that's a commercial problem. It's a it's an industry now. You see, and we all, we loved it for a while. The industry was all good. <laughs> it was good fun. Everything about it. Y'all and everybody's sort of part of it in a way. But it's something's going to have to have to change because it's it's you don't want to spoil the fun. You know, you definitely don't want to spoil the fun. There's going to be some spoiled fun. Yeah, I think there's going to be. I think it's, it's coming. I think it's there's going to have to be some sacrifice yeah and yeah, i think yeah. the government probably needs to clean itself up a bit i yeah, think that yeah. what goes on in yeah. that office is probably a little more i don't want to say crooked but it's certainly not i don't think it that it's um what's best for the fish no no it's not some people still think it's a first class experience but so if you're being rel, you know if you're saying it's relatively worse is all i'm saying you know because it was fantastic and it's not quite so fantastic now in some some days Anyway, well, maybe it's best for you to quit some of these places while you're ahead. Well, <laughs> sounds so bad, but it's true, know. you know. Yeah, exactly. At least you could. I know I had Bill, Bill and John McMillan up at my place. Yeah, yeah. Not that long ago, and yeah. you, and Bill is amazing. Yeah, he's such a gentleman. Yeah, yeah, and you could see in his eyes that he was just saddened by what he was seeing, and yeah. I think yeah. he. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he. It felt like maybe he would have been happier if he hadn't seen what it is today. That's it. That yeah. hit it right on the head, April. That's, that's exactly it. You just didn't want to see it because it's better to remember it the way. Well, even it's not that long ago either, which is yeah. the other thing. But yeah, I mean, you just want to. Why? What's with the jet skis? For Christ's sake! Come on, relax, you guys. You know, relax. Take it easy. You don't want to catch all the fish. All. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting to hear you say that even back then, you'd yeah. come in with a fish, and the guys would be like, "Oh, you lucky bugger." Yeah, so. yeah, I don't really and truly. Yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be. Somehow, I don't know. Is that just Puritanism? I don't know. Maybe, but it's that's the way it felt. Right, boy, it got one. You know, got one. Fantastic. <laughs> 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 well, we'll have to get you back to BC. Bob, thank you very much for coming on to the show. My pleasure, April. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 